Our Father in heaven, I ask that you would be here as we discuss sacred history. The history of what you've been doing in this world and what you want to do. And I ask for that gift in the name of Jesus. Amen. I won't. Nope, that can go. He sure can. Um, the projector isn't mine, the computer is. I don't know. It was brought here for me. Once upon a time in a land far away, there lived a young man, A.T. Jones, and a young man, Wagner. Wagner's father was um, also Wagner. E. H. Wagner, that's the father, wanted to join the Advent movement at a time when many Adventists still believed in the shut-door idea. That is, that there was no hope of salvation for persons who were not part of the Advent movement. He wanted to join the church, but the Adventist group he was associating with, they didn't think that they could encourage him since he had not been you know, part of that movement. They thought his case was hopeless. Ellen White intervened in his behalf and encouraged him to believe that God would accept him. And it wasn't long after that that the shut-door theory was abandoned by the early Adventists. I'm not even going to attempt in one hour to tell you a good history of Jones and Wagner and Wheeland and Short and Sequera and Questions on Doctrine. That's the title of the seminar, isn't it? And so any, could, couldn't any one of those be a good hour? So you'll understand if I skip things. So here we go. God chose those two men. It appears to me that he gifted them particularly to do the work that needed to be done. You know it's his normal thing? It's the normal thing for God to gift men appropriately for the kind of work he expects them to do. So that if God calls you to do a mighty work and you don't have mighty abilities, there's no reason why you shouldn't go do the mighty work. Jones would be required, for example, to defend our church at the level of Congress against Sunday law oppression. And you know what God gave him? A photographic memory. So that he could refer to cases and history references and just pull them to mind and use them when he was speaking to people who had also very bright minds and comprehensive understanding. Do I need a photographic memory? I don't. Would God give you one if you needed one to do his work? He would. Wagner had an experience where he saw, whether in metaphor or in vision or in just the proper use of an imagination, that he saw Jesus crucified for him. And that vision had such an impact in his experience. How many of you have read his own testimony about that experience? Can I see your hands have read Wagner's experience? He talked about how the impact of that experience on him 
was such that he never wanted to preach about anything else. It gives you an idea of what a proper use of the mind could do for us, how it could take the, take the truths of the gospel and turn them into an experience instead of a theory. When these men, men began teaching, a very preliminary step for them was studying about Jesus in the Bible. Did you know the Bible says a lot about Jesus? I mean, if you have read, for example, Christ, our righteousness, or Christ and his righteousness, the book had three different titles. It was published in Australia and England and here. If you have read that book, or The Consecrated Way to Christian Perfection by A.T. Jones, or any, any number of their other works, maybe it's been amazing to you just how much information there is in the Gospels about Jesus, and it all has a tendency to point in the same direction, to really exalt our Savior to greater and greater levels of preeminence in our experience. Really, it just, everything points in that same direction, just from a different way. This is a summary of something that can't be well summarized. If you want to understand it more, you're going to have to read the books yourself. Jesus chose men who would do that kind of study to do the kind of work that needed to be done to speak about Jesus to people who had a misconcept of how truth works. I speak right now about Uriah Smith generically for the whole bunch that were here in Minneapolis 119 years ago. You could say that their idea of truth would be kind of like your idea of building a bicycle that you put on the tire that represents the fact that we're sinners, and the tire that represents the fact that Jesus forgives us, and put on the chain that represents the fact that we have mortal souls, and, and you sort of put the thing together, a bunch of truths, until you have made your bicycle a well-put-together collection of truth. Can you sort of get the metaphor I'm trying to create in your mind? A system of truth, the bicycle. But if this was a good illustration of the way Uriah Smith was thinking, it wasn't an accurate illustration of life. Some truths are like putting the bicycle together, but some truths are like pedaling the bicycle. And the truths of the gospel about Jesus and what he has done, about his love and its impact, about the power of his word, about his creative energy, these truths are so much more akin to pedaling than they are to putting the bicycle together. I mean, as soon as you stop giving them attention, you stop making progress, even if you still know that they are true. But if you don't understand how essential they are to your experience, then you could be sitting here in Minneapolis 119 years ago and hear the presentations and feel like, yeah, yeah, we know that, we know that, uh-huh, uh-huh, yeah, yeah, and you, and since it's not so interesting to you, then you start looking for something else to notice, and you might notice defects in the speaker, which is just not a helpful thing to do when you're listening to the preaching of the Word of God. I'm summarizing now just briefly what happened in the meetings. 
I mean, the people, we talked this morning in a different meeting, but 80% of you weren't here, about inspiration, about how people came to the Minneapolis convention confused about Ellen White's role, thinking that she was being influenced by some by these young men. Because they thought she was influencing them, rather than the idea that her writings were influencing them, they didn't give her much attention. They didn't treat her with proper respect. And this meeting, which was intended by heaven to prevent your birth, failed to do what God intended. Let me tell you, as I understand, what God did intend to do, and then we'll go on to what happened. God intended that the presentation of the beauties of Jesus would so touch hearts that men would be spontaneously moved to confess their sins. That they'd be moved to to admit that their religion had been a hollow one. That their sacrifice had been like that of Cain. It had been the very best they had to offer, but it had not been dependent upon a Savior. God intended that the power of this truth would so move them that he would be able to fill them with his spirit. That early rain experience and then growing to a latter rain experience. That the truth presented to the leaders would be taken to their various fields and would produce a worldwide revival. That that revival would lead to the outpouring of the latter rain a loud cry, and within just a number of years after Minneapolis, 1888, Jesus would have come to this world because someone in heaven could have said, the harvest of the earth is ripe. This is what God intended. What happened was quite different. What happened is that the men went back to their fields filled with a hard spirit, disgruntled over rebukes from a prophet they had no confidence in. They went back to their fields feeling that these young men without much experience were being exalted to positions they didn't deserve and that they, that the men of more experience were being given not proper respect for the hard work they had done in promoting God's truth. And there has been an idea that gained ground sometime in the 20 years after Ellen White died that after 1888, that our church began to bound onward and upward. You know what I mean? I mean that one by one, each of those leaders repented of their opposition and that produced a great victory where there had been a defeat. And then with that great victory, we began to evangelize the world And soon we passed the million mark, not very soon, mind you, it was 100,000 first, and then 144,000, which was a big thing for us. And it wasn't for a long, it wasn't for a long time that we got to the million mark, but we began to grow, and we've been growing ever since. What I've just given you is the company line, if I can call it that, of a large number of historians that that wrote between 1930 and 1985 about this experience. Books like Movement of Destiny and 
Oh, the other names are fleeing me right now. It's probably fine. Anyway, this was the, the position that they presented. It happened in the, around the year 1950 that Robert Wieland and becoming soon involved Donald Short, missionaries in Africa, began to become aware of things Ellen White had written about the 1888 experience. I'll tell you publicly, I thank God for the research they did. I think it was a great service to our church that Wieland and Short, as they did their research, they found that Ellen White, writing sometimes years after those dramatic conversions, of those men, still spoke about the spirit of Minneapolis as if it was still in the church, and it wasn't the Holy Spirit of Minneapolis, it was another spirit of Minneapolis. Her writings about Minneapolis, all through her life, they kept coming up, her memory, she would talk about Minneapolis. You should just do a search in the Ellen White City ROM for Minneapolis. It would be so interesting to you what you'd come up with. To make the story short enough to tell in the time we have, Whelan decided to really dig into this. He went to the White Estate to do research. He was in there for a short time and he was refused to be in there for a longer time. There was suspicion that maybe he was trying to look for materials that would be damaging to the church. The White Estate has been faulted for that. If I could say a little bit on their behalf, I, I do think it wasn't wise for them to refuse to let him in but a little bit that might color it some. You know, the shepherd's rod was rising in the 1930s. And the shepherd's rod, and just before that, the Seventh-day Reform Movement, both of those movements came to trace what they called the fall of the Adventist church to the experience that happened in 1888. Do you follow what I'm saying right now? So that it was possible that if you were bringing up issues about 1888, you might yourself feel, if you're at the White Estate, that here goes number three. I don't know if that makes any sense to you what I'm saying. Regardless of whatever the motivation was, Whelan began to do a different type of research. He began to write to elder ministers in the Adventist Church, men who had known Ellen White when she was alive, and to collect manuscripts. Dave Fiedler put up talk on Audioverse about this just recently. I feel like since you can get it there, I should just skip over a lot of this and you can find it. Do you use Audioverse? You should. What do I mean? For the eight of you who might not know, it's www.audioverse.org. Just tremendous material. And you'll find there by Dave Fiedler some sermons on stuff I'm not going to say again right now, since you can listen to it there. Wieland and Short produced a manuscript for the General Conference. Their idea was an interesting one. Probably it's become one of the least popular of their ideas, but I think it's true. It's the idea that we have some work of repentance to do in relation to what our forefathers have done wrong. Have you read it in Daniel 9? The interesting prayers of Daniel. The way that he, the way that he prays. 
It's not that in the books of heaven, beside Daniel's name, were written the sins of his fathers. But it's more like this, that Daniel grew up in a church that had done these things wrong. And he ought to show that his spirit is not with it by saying he's sorry for what his church had done. Do you know, I'll tell you, I'm sorry for what was done by the leaders of my church in 1888. I'm sorry sorry that we grieve the Spirit of God. And I don't suppose that I fully escaped the spirit that was in Minneapolis growing up inside this church. But back to the history. You understand what that looks like if you write a document suggesting that the, what Wheatland and Short found is that in the Old Testament you might have a king, and you might have a wicked king, a wicked king, and then a righteous king, and the righteous king would, would repent, and what would the people do? They'd repent. The king repents, and then the people repent. And then there's a great revival. Have you, have you, can you witness that that's in the Old Testament? That happens a few times there. And so their idea was, we can get some people to repent, but if we really want the system to happen, then you understand where they're coming from. Why they'd, why they'd write a letter to... The, you understand where they're coming from. Anyway, the letter was answered by Leroy Froome. He was the representative of what was called the Defense Literature Committee. When Leroy Froome wrote a letter, it looked like that it represented the General Conference of Seventh-day Adventists, because this was a committee of the General Conference, and it looked like that the General Conference as an organization rejected what Wheeland and Short were doing. Now, I am so summarizing history as to almost make it inaccurate. I mean, the truth is that there were several back and forth and a number of correspondence. And if you want all that detail, well, there's not time for it, so you'll have to go dig it up. But, right? But the summary of the thing was that it was as if they were being rejected. And Leroy Froome was the one writing the letters to them. What Wheeland and Short didn't know is that Leroy Froome was also writing a book that before they had begun their research, he had begun doing research on the same topic. He had been compiling data about 1888 for writing a book on Adventist church history. And he had taken the exact opposite view of the experience that they were taking. So it was no good for for their position that he was the one responding to their letters. The summary of what he said is, you guys are in the dark. You don't have all the data. If you knew what I knew, you wouldn't make your position, so just wait a little while and I'll publish my book and you'll be okay. But they couldn't buy into that because they had enough statements from inspiration. It only takes a couple of statements from Ellen White and you know that whatever's written there is true. So even though they didn't have his data, they, they asked if they could see it. They'd like to see it, but no matter what that hidden data is, this is still true. Do you follow the logic of that? And so it didn't quite make them be quiet. I need to just fast forward some more. Eventually, if I understand the story correctly, Wilindon Short felt that if the General Conference rejected their message, that they had done their duty, and they just sort of let it be. But what they had written was published by others really to their surprise. 
And I'll tell you that that manuscript, from what I can tell, had quite an impact on the Seventh-day Adventist Church. I, I give you one example. No, I don't know. So, I'll just summarize by saying that a number of men still alive today that have done great things for God trace their conversion to the reading of that manuscript. Their conversion from a Laodicean experience to a Christian experience. I'm speaking about men who themselves today do not really appreciate the work of Wheeland and Short because of doctrinal differences. Yet, to that manuscript, they trace their experience. It went all over. I've read it. The summary of, I remember of reading it, it tells the story in detail that I've told you in summary. And then it presents, it presents the history of 1888 as a picture of a spiritual disaster that we need to change. About the same time that Wieland and Short were making their presentations, that was when some evangelical men of fame inside Adventism, like Walter Martin, were getting ready to write a book about Adventists. This has received probably more attention in the last six months than it has in the ten years before that. Because, you know, they had in Andrews the question on doctrine thing, and I think it just came out in the Adventist Review, a summary of the story with even a picture of the delegates. It's so interesting to read it. Um, so for those of you who haven't caught up on that, a three-minute version of it is that the evangelicals writing about us did not want to lie about us. They wanted to really hear it from us. I give them credit for that. My experience is that if you talk to a non-Adventist, an ex-Adventist about the church, you'll get quite a different picture than if you talk to an Adventist about the church. And I think it's probably even true about Mormons, that if you talk to a man who's left the Mormon church, you might get quite a different picture of Mormonism than if you're talking to someone who was a Mormon. And I just give anyone credit who wants to hear from the horse's mouth what the horse has to say. Balaam didn't want to hear that, did he? So Walter Martin met with us. It looks like that he had the misfortune of having on his committee the, one of the same men that was involved in answering Wheeland and Short, and that was Leroy Froome. I guess I don't have lots of nice things to say about Leroy Froome. He's dead now. You should be very careful the mean things you say about dead people. So I'm trying to be very careful right now. Maybe the thing is to do is skip them. Leroy Froome, it looks like for the committee that he was on, the committee that was writing this book, that he was, of the committee members, the most prolific writer. You know about yourself. If you were on a committee with like four other people and you were the writer and they weren't, who would end up writing the report to the committee? You know, if you're the writer, your ideas would be better represented in that report than any other. I was on a committee meeting sometime in the last year. There were five of us there. About a week after the committee, I saw the report. 
There were things in that report that well represented the man who wrote it. But didn't in any sense represent dialogue that had happened on the committee. Have you ever had an experience kind of like that? I don't know if you have. Froome was the writer that was on that committee. And he wrote a book that some have said is one of the best defenses of Adventism ever written. I don't think so. I would go with Nicole's questions and answers as maybe, for example, a good example of an excellently written defense. Or Jane Andrews' um, The Judgment, Its Events, and Their Order. And I think you could find some others that would be a lot better. But some have said that. An excellent defense. However, it was a defense that on a few issues really, really tried to make a change. One of those was the nature of Christ. And that started a firestorm. And one of them that got Andreasen so upset was a rumor about an effort to try to modify the meaning of the word atonement and maybe even put footnotes in Ellen White's writings. If you want to know how he got upset about that, you can read what he wrote on this topic. Someone leaked him a copy of the minutes of a meeting of the White Estate. It looks to me like the minutes he saw probably didn't say anything bad was decided. It was just what was presented to the White Estate that really got this gentleman upset. It was the idea of adding footnotes to Ellen White's books to explain away certain things that were plainly being stated, namely about the idea of atonement. You know, we're in the day of... That sentence does not match very well with a sentence like this. The atonement was finished at the... Do you see how they don't match too good? And this is what really bothered Andreasen. So Leroy Froome ended up dialoguing with two men who were operating almost entirely independent of each other. I mean, Wieland and Andreasen. If Wieland and Andreasen had known this, it would have been made history so much different, I think. But um, that was going on, and I want to go further and go beyond it. Because you have this handout, and so far I haven't said anything related to this at all. Have, you, have any of you noted that and wish I'd just get to it? I was talking to Wheeland on the phone about a week and a half ago. He called me. Does anyone know, has he shown up at this meeting? Robert Wheeland? Has anyone seen him here? So, he was thinking about being here. There was He was thinking about it. Robert Whelan called me because he wanted to... He'd written a book just for this meeting. Do you know that? You know he's an old man. And I'm not ashamed to say that. I'm not making light of him. He told me the same thing. In other words, he's at this age of life where he's not going to do many mighty things more, and he put a lot of effort into preparing a book to help you understand the gospel. And he wanted to present it here, but it didn't work out for him. So what he was calling to do was to ask me if, if I could find a way to help him get access or if I would present it. Can you understand where he's coming from? So I'll tell you what I told him, because I told it to his face while it was to the phone, and I'll tell you the same thing. There are some things that Wieland has taught that are the gospel truth, that are so precious that even if combined with some errors, would convert hearts and change people. 
Look at the front of your handout here, if you have it. You see one through nine there numbered at the top? You see that number one where it says God is agape love? I'm, I'm talking about ideas that Wieland, in, in my opinion, has championed that have been so interesting. God is agape love. Number two, God's love takes the initiative in our salvation. This idea that God went after saving me when I had no interest in saving myself, you're looking for a handout? The one that says forensic justification on the top. We passed them out, all that we had, just as we started, and I know there's not sufficient. They're going to put more in this room later. If you can sit beside someone that has one, this is good. If you can't, I'm sorry. So I'll speak loudly for those who can't see it. God is agape love and God takes initiative in our salvation. Isn't that a beautiful idea? It, what if God had waited until we have gone after him? So that wouldn't have worked out, right? Number three, Jesus died bearing the sins of all men, both of the eventually lost and of the finally saved. You know, it's a powerful truth. When men know that Jesus paid for their sins, even if they're not going to accept it, that he still did it. That he did it just to give them a chance and that it caused him a great deal of pain, that kind of truth has an impact on the life. Number four, when men understand the love of God and of his Christ, when men understand it, that should be understand without an ing, their hearts will be melted. When they understand that God has already justified them, Many will turn to him. That number five is where I don't quite agree with Wieland. But can you understand with me how I can appreciate numbers one through four so much as to not spend all my time on number five? Can you all follow that kind of logic with me? Can you? Five says that when they understand that God has already justified them, many will turn to them, turn to him. It's the idea that God has justified everyone in a certain way, and when they understand it, that's when they'll be converted. It's not what I think is true, but I'm trying to explain right now what Wieland has come to understand. I'll say more about him in a minute. Number six, all men are born into the doomed family of Adam, and so are doomed through his sin. All men are dead. That is, their doom has been... I don't mean that is. They were dead or doomed. Their doom has been paid by the death of Jesus. They died with him. It's that 7B is another place where I would take a little bit of exception to Wieland. But I'll get to why I don't make a big fight over it also in just a minute. Number eight. When we accept the fact that we are already saved, we are changed. Does that sound a lot to you like number five? A. Our faith turns the theory into an experience. B, we are now justified by faith. That is, after the experience or at the experience, we're justified by faith. So that Wieland would understand two types of justification. A justification of life that applies to everyone, and then an experience of justification by faith. What I'm trying to do is to represent him accurately to you. Number nine. It is difficult to refuse the facts that are urged on us by our loving Father, and so difficult to be lost. This is the good news of the gospel. 
probably be more accurate to say this is part of the good news of the gospel. I mean, I'm really trying to represent him well. So, items one through four deserve an ever-increasing exposure. That's what I say in this very next part. But items I'm reading to you, but items five, six, seven, eight, and nine are all a mixture of truth and error. The truths in these statements could be worded as follows. What are five through nine in the second section? It's the way I would say the same truths, but as I understand it, without the error that was mixed with them. Let's just go through it for a minute. When men understand the sacrifice of Jesus in their behalf, many will turn to him. Isn't that the truth? Isn't it true that when we exalt the sacrifice of Jesus, when they see what's been done, that that melts hearts? Number six, all men would be born hopeless as a result of Adam's sin had not Christ interposed. Can you agree with that? You know, I don't believe in original sin, that I'm guilty for what Adam did, but still it's true that if Jesus had not been born, I would... You know what Adam forfeited for me? My probation. When he was in the Garden of Eden, it's not like he was saved. What was he doing there? You know, he was on probation, wasn't he? He was on probation to see, would he be faithful? And how did he handle our human probation? He did not pass it. I don't want to make fun of him because there's a good chance we would have done about the same. But when he left the garden, he left probation behind and our case was just automatically hopeless at that point. Adam forfeited the probation that was granted him in the garden for seven, see item six. All men are doomed through their connection with Adam, A, but Jesus paid their sin and restored to them probation. Has Jesus restored to us probation? You know, by paying for our sin, the thing that he's done for all of us is a beautiful gift. I mean, he gave me back probation. Is probation based on my faith? Is it based on my searching after him? Do you know, without any activity on my part, probation has been granted to me. This has been done for all men. And isn't that an amazing boon from heaven? I mean, a chance. It's what he gave me. All will be raised from death to receive judgment for their use of their purchased probationary time. That is, my mortal life is my probationary time. While I'm alive, I'm on probation. When I die, my probation ends. If we had not been granted a probation, then our first death, it looks to me, would have been all there'd be to it. If Jesus hadn't come, men would live and men would die, and that would be all there was. Why is there a second death and a judgment? Because the gift of probation has brought with it some sacred responsibilities. Do you follow that idea? Number eight. When we are moved by the truths of redemption to live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, we are changed. Our faith is counted as righteousness. Christ's life is credited, that should be credited, to our account, and we are justified. Number nine. It is difficult to refuse the pleadings of the Spirit, but it is also perfectly, what's the word say? 
natural to do so. Our natures recoil from death to self, and it is a continual struggle to keep the body under and so not to be cast away. What I'm trying to do in these two things is just present Whelan's ideas and then my understanding, and then I'm going to comment on the two. Though we differ on some things that I would not say are petty, I think actually that they are important. Yet the power of those first four things is such power. The emphasis on the cross of Calvary is such power. The talking about God's love is such power in the life. And Wieland, who gave his life and is still alive doing it, giving his life to doing that, has had an impact for the conversion of others that has been tremendous. Can you follow what I'm trying to communicate? It is not necessary to say that all he says is true, to say that he has been a help to the world. Where did he get off, in my opinion? Wieland, you might end up listening to this, Brother Wieland. So, I'm trying to say it kindly. I think it was in this idea that the 1888 message consisted in some fact or set of facts that were not known up to that point. That what God gave to the church in 1888 was some special ideas that constituted the true gospel that were not understood before. I think that never was true. Rather, that what God gave in 1888 was he put the gospel in our attention in such a way, in such power, that it would change us with an intention that we would continue to give it that same kind of attention that it would be before our eyes until we were turned into different people. Do you understand the two different ideas? Can I try to say that again? One idea is that there was a secret ingredient in the message. And if we can find the secret ingredient, then let's broadcast that, and then we'll have the power. And for Wieland, I believe the secret ingredient was forensic justification, or that was part of it, these ideas that everyone was justified. To his credit, he told me when I was in his home a few years ago that you can't find any evidence that either Wieland or, excuse me, that either Jones or Wagner were teaching that in 1888. And I think in this document, if you'll look, do you notice this document has a lot of pages? I don't know if you all noticed that. Um, if you will notice that starting right about the fourth page, it's just a bunch of materials from the Adventist Pioneer Library. Maybe it's like the fifth or sixth page. Um, those materials are the writings of Jones and Wagner where they refer to Romans 5, verse 18. How many of you have an idea of what's in Romans 5, 18? It would be about the same people who are up on this topic. That would be about it. It's the verse that more than others sort of leans toward what the 1888 Message Study Committee has been teaching about 1888. It might just be interesting to you to read what Wieland and Short had to say about Romans 5.18 and other pioneers. I think you'll find that they don't teach anything like forensic justification. Would that be interesting to you to discover that? That they didn't teach anything like it? I think you ought to just take a read of it. Where does it start? There aren't page numbers on this thing, but let me see if I can count and just tell you. Um, 
At section six, I don't know if you've seen section numbers, and that's on C one, two, three, four, five, six. It's on the back side of the sixth page. It says section six, the historical teachings of forensic justification. And it's from there to the end of the article. So it's, you know, about six more pages of, of small print. I think on those six pages you have about 45 pages of Jones and Wagner's materials in terms of the original printing. Have I really lost you? I'm going to try to summarize what I've said so far briefly and go on. So two men, Wheeland and Short, found that we missed something in 1888 and tried to bring it to the attention of the church. And it's very apparent to me that God used them to bring this to the attention of the church. The church needed to, to have its attention brought to this period of time. I think that over time, they began looking for something that didn't exist, that is, some secret ingredient of doctrine that made the 18th message the special thing that it was. But that really, the thing that they found that was special really wasn't even true. But that the other things they were teaching, many of them were so powerful that the preaching of them produced conversion wherever it was done well, so that many were converted by this experience. It really isn't fair to talk about someone else's belief when he's not here to talk about it himself. Life isn't fair. That, and I wasn't trying to undermine what I just said by that, nor to be mean. What I mean is, if, if you're going to know it's true, it's not going to happen by listening to les, my lecture or somebody else's. Do you know you're just going to have to dig for yourself, and that's the only way it's ever going to happen? That's what I'm trying to communicate. Look on the back side of the first page. I'm speaking about forensic justification. Do you see at the top of the back page, it says, Elder Whelan confirmed the rumor with an illustration from a human legal system. Do you see where I'm reading? A man may not be tried for the same crime twice if he is exonerated originally. Why did I use such a big word as exonerated? I should have picked a smaller one. In other words, if he is held not guilty. This is an interesting idea. I don't think it's true. But it's an interesting idea that if Jesus paid for my sin, well, then the account is settled and I can't be tried for that sin again. Do you follow the idea? Anyway, I don't buy it. It looks like Jesus paid for my sin, but he never forced me to give it to him. Let's look at some of these passages. Ecclesiastes 11.9 Rejoice, O young man, in thy youth, and let thy heart cheer thee in the days of thy youth, and walk in the ways of thine heart and in the sight of thine eyes. But know thou that for all these things God will bring thee into judgment. Are we judged for the things that we do? For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. Are we judged for the works that we do? 
But I say unto you that every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give account thereof in the day of judgment. Are we judged for the things that we say? I'm not going to read the rest of them, but you know they all say the same thing. Look down to the next heading, the in Christ motif. Motif is not a big word, but it has the same effect as big words. I mean, it's not a well-used word. Call it the in Christ theme. And there are other issues worth addressing. I'm reading to you. One is the mistake of literalizing a metaphor. In Hebrews, the ministry of Jesus is contrasted with that of the Levites. Christ's ministry is compared to that of Melchizedek. The Bible argues that Christ's ministry is greater than the Levitical, and as much as... I shouldn't have called that Melch, should I? I was in a hurry, right? As Melch's was greater than Levi's. And to illustrate a contrast between... I did it again. Between Melchizedek's and Levi's, the book makes the following statement. This is Hebrews 7, verses 9 through 10. And as I may so say, Levi also, who receiveth tithes, paid tithes in Abraham. For he was yet in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. I'm sure that... Let me just say it. Did you notice the first five or six words in that verse? And as I may so say... It's a metaphor. It's an illustration. You know, if you make illustrations literal, you misuse them. How can you illustrate the misuse of an illustration? Okay, this is a good example. If you literalize the illustration, it can lead you to false conclusions. You know, it really isn't literally so that Levi was in Abraham. But if you say it was literally so that Levi was in Abraham and Abraham paid tithes, then you must say that Levi was responsible for paying tithes to Melchizedek. Does that make any sense to what I'm just saying? And if you say that he was, you can't get away with the fact that he would also be responsible for lying to, was it... Abimelech, who was the, the king? I forget. Yeah. Nerds, you make yourself responsible for what your dad and grand did and great-granddad did. And, and the Bible's just very clear about this doctrine. Paul was not trying to get to this. He was making an illustration that is such a simple one. The idea is that Abraham's greater than Levi, and Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek. The granddad paid tithes to Melchizedek, that's the granddad of the Levites. Obviously, Melchizedek is a greater priesthood. It was a simple illustration, and you wouldn't want to make it run on all fours. Look down at the italics. Now, this idea. We were in Jesus at the cross, so we're killed there. We were in Christ during his life, so lived a perfect one. In Christ our sins paid for, and our righteousness is, is paid for, and our righteousness is established, and this is no vicarious substitution, this is literal reality. That is my understanding of the position of the 188 Message Study Committee, but since I wrote it and they did not write it, 
you probably shouldn't quote it to them as if they did. I'm just trying to represent them fairly. Do you follow? I'm trying to be so careful when I'm talking about someone else. I don't buy it. It looks to me like it is an idea so abstract that it's impossible to understand it. That if it was true, we ought to believe it because a prophet said it. Do you follow what I'm saying there? I mean, what God says we should believe, even if it doesn't make any sense. But if God doesn't say it, we don't want to extract it from a metaphor and say it's the truth, especially if it's incomprehensible. But are there some perfectly comprehensible things about being in Christ? There are. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. I mean, that's just an example of a number of things. So I'm, if I go through this document like we're going through it right now, we'll get to page three and be done, right? So look at the heading that starts at the bottom. Justification in Romans 5, turn it to the third page. Let me see what I want to find for you. Maybe what I need to do is just summarize one basic idea. There has been a common way of advocating this idea of forensic justification. I should give myself a time limit of four minutes and get off this topic because it would misrepresent my ideas to let it be the summary of all we talk about. Do you follow that idea? But the idea, you know Muslims deny the gospel on this basis, that it's not fair that someone else could die for our sins? That's no reason to, for me to deny it. I am not qualified to say what is just. Who is qualified to say what is just? You know, it's the judge. The judge is qualified. And if the judge of this world says that it's just, that I be given righteousness and that Jesus, my judge, pays for my sins, if I can't see any justice in it, it's no evidence that it's unjust. It's just evidence that I am short-sighted. Yet, if I want to be justified, I ought to take it by faith as so. And if, and if there's anything that worries me about this doctrine of forensic justification, it's combined with such beautiful gospel truths that if it denies substitutionary atonement, it feels to me like a very dangerous doctrine like it impugns the wisdom of my Savior. What you have here on this page is a study of the word justify in Scripture. I think the word justify in Scripture, and I tell you, I gave you a long study of it. I mean, I think I gave you, it looks like about 40 passages that use the word. It's very clear to me that in all those passages then every passage outside of Romans 5 that used the word, it's as clear as the day that justified is an experience you have by faith. It's just simple. Then I would want to be careful in how I use the word to use it in harmony with Scripture. Wouldn't you want to be in harmony with Scripture? To speak in a way that matches what the Bible has to say. Maybe I'm going to... I'll just turn to about two more pages further. It's a page that... The 
first words on the page are, when in our spiritual infanthood. It's the back side of one of the pages. Do you, are any of you there? When in our infant spirit, when our, when in our spiritual infanthood. These are just a list of passages that use the term in Christ in a very interesting way. Let's look at them. Very few of these are actually quotes of the entire verse. I was trying to make sure you would actually read it. While in our spiritual infanthood, we are babes in Christ Jesus. We have many instructors in Christ Jesus and perhaps one spiritual father. Our way of acting, our visible be behavior may be in Christ. The righteous dead are asleep in Christ. The righteous living have hope in Christ. We may have rejoicing in Christ Jesus. The church is established together in Christ. We may speak in the sight of God in Christ. The simplicity of the gospel is in Christ. Our liberty is possessed in Christ Jesus. The covenant with Abraham was confirmed in Christ. I guess there's just a large summary of these ideas. It looks very plain to me in Scripture that the term in Christ Jesus is a reference to my relation to him and that in almost every case, it's a reference to the relationship I have to him when by faith I have accepted him as my Savior. So what did Paul say in Romans 16? He spoke about his kinsmen who were in Christ. Anyone know the next two words? It says, before me. Isn't it very clear if you think about that sentence that in Christ is an experience that happens at some point in your life? When they were, when they became Christians, at that point they were in Christ. So this is a history lecture and I'm teaching it like it's a Bible lesson. I think you'll enjoy reading this. No, I think some of you will enjoy reading this. I think it. Let's go on. How much time do I have left? What? Oh. So Wieland and Short, and Short is now deceased, for a long time were treated like enemies of the church. It really wasn't over this. I mean, it, it really wasn't over the things that I disagree with Short, Wieland and Short on. It was over some of the things I agreed with them on. They were considered enemies for agitating the issue of 1888, and they deserve credit for the work they did, even if they did not see all things clearly. It's not necessary for you to say that Martin Luther was right on most of his points to say that God used him in a mighty way. Can you follow me in that logic? More recently, a number of young people have taken an interest in what is going on in 1888. There is a book that I've recommended, and I recommend it to you. Can I recommend you several books? I recommend you get a hold of the book, Lessons on Faith. It is a simple book, a simple book that teaches the idea how can you summarize a book in a sentence? But it makes faith a concrete idea. There is a book, The Glad Tidings. It's about the book of Galatians. I recommend you read it. Christ and His Righteousness. What do these books have in common? They have in common, they put the gospel before you 
they put it in your attention so that it begins to change your heart. And what a beautiful experience it was for me when I began reading these books. At some point in the future, God is going to do again what he did in 1888. He's going to begin presenting a series of simple truths that exalt Jesus. And the response he's going to be looking for is for men to confess their sins, to humble their hearts, and admit that they have a hollow experience. He's going to be looking for that because he can honor that experience with an outpouring of the power of his spirit and the work can be finished. Satan wants to prevent it and he has a few avenues. He's been working so that people would not have proper respect for the testimonies so that they'd be looking for some some oddity of doctrine instead of the beauty of the big picture. He's been working so that they would get into quibbles and arguing. And quibbling and arguing is exactly what we can't afford to do if we're going to lift up the truth that must be lifted up. And maybe he's even worked through those who God has used in a mighty way to cause some of the confusion that exists. I won't speak of Willand and Short in the last two minutes, but I'll speak a minute of Jones and Wagner. So it's true, they lost their way. Can I tell you something about that? God doesn't choose men because they are the most spiritual men. He chooses men because the truth affects us when we think about it. And if you are more weak than the one next to you, God may choose you to give the message. Because by you giving the message, you have a better chance than the man next to you to have it constantly before you. As the truth constantly has your attention, it's the best chance you have to be changed by it. So it's in God's order to choose very weak men and entrust them with very beautiful messages. You can't fault him if they don't make it. You can honor him for doing the best he could do for them. Why was Lucifer the highest angel? It's not that because he was the most exalted that he developed pride. It's that God put him the closest to the throne to have the most exposure, the most view, so that whatever could be done to prevent his fall could be done. God put Lucifer in the highest place to prevent his fall, and it did not do it. If God has given you a work to do, you can't afford to not do it. You can't afford to not share the truths that have come your way. It's the sharing of them that makes them have an impact in your life. I give Wieland and Short this. It looks like they never stopped sharing. Jones and Wagner. It looks like for Wagner he did. And for Jones that his sharing turned to an entirely different nature. I don't fault God. And it does not change the power of the message God sent through them that he used weak men to give it. I recommend their book still heartily. Minus a few that were written late. This book, Lessons on the Reformation, is not a good book. In that book, A.T. Jones proves that Ellen White is a false prophet on the basis of how she relates to the National Sunday Law. You know, by that point, he was being led by another spirit. But when you find their gospel presentations from the period of the 90s, you'll find enough in there to feed the soul 
enough that you ought to share to do what needs to be done. Let's kneel for a closing prayer. Our Father in heaven, I thank you for using Jones and Wagner and giving them what they needed to do your work. I'm sorry on behalf of your church for how we treated them, for how the way we rejected their precious message made it easy for them to fall back into their natural weaknesses. And I ask that you'd find a way to preserve us from falling, that you would use the beautiful truths of the gospel to make us different and to change us each day. Find a way to do again what you did before, to finish the work you started in us. And I ask for these gifts in the name of Jesus. Amen. This media was produced by Audioverse and Hope Media Ministry for GYC, Generation of Youth for Christ. If you would like to listen to more great media like this presentation, or if you would like to learn more about GYC, please visit www.gycweb.org. You can also find great witnessing media at audioverse.org and at hopevideo.com.